Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you're tuning in from. Welcome to INE Live Special Report Edition. My name is Jack Reedy, and I am here to host. This segment is dedicated to the events of the world and discussing the impacts as they might have on business and technology. As always, we're answering your questions as well in the chat. Before we get started, as we do each time we stream on INE Live, I want to let you know we are streaming live across many different social media platforms right now including Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch. Unfortunately, LinkedIn's having a little issues, but we'll get on it soon. Uh, be sure to like, follow, and subscribe with the notifications turned on for whichever platform you're using, so that way you can uh, stay in the loop whenever we go live to hear the most relevant news, training, or interviews on technology for absolutely free to you. Now, as I said before, we do definitely want to get you involved in the conversation. Talk to us, talk to others. We absolutely love to see it. So our team is monitoring the chat, and if you have any comment, drop it in. And if you have a question, just throw a cue in front of it at the beginning. We can find them easily, and they will send them over my way. Um, we will definitely try to get to as absolutely many as we can today. As I said previously, my name is Jack Reedy, Sec IT guy across all of the social platforms, and I am the director of cybersecurity content here at INE. I'll be your host as we discuss the ongoing Ukraine-Russia conflict, uh, the cybersecurity implementation implications and actions you can take i swear i can talk good uh with that i'll bring in my co-host for today INE's chief content officer neil bridges hey neil thank you so much for being here how's it going jack glad to be sharing the stage with you again today looking forward to this chat today absolutely now i know we each have a little bit of prior experience engaging with foreign operations and while we definitely can't talk into the details uh, can you describe a bit of your previous work for the audience so they understand where we're coming from? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I spent time in the Air Force from 2003 to 2013. The majority of that was doing cyber work in some way, shape, or form. Um, round about the 2008 time period, I got really, really involved with U.S. Cyber Command um, and, and specifically working to... Uh, focus specifically on building out capabilities uh, for the National Security Agency, for a lot of other uh, uh, Air Force units that were kind of focused in on the offensive side of operations, uh, specifically for the United States Air Force. Um, at, most people may not be aware of this, but you know, the reason that that distinction is made is because in a wartime scenario, you know, civilians and contractors can't conduct actual wartime operations on behalf of the United States. It has to be a, a you know, somebody who actually is a Department of Defense uh, you know, you know, uh, enlisted or officer member. And so um, those types of wartime cybersecurity activities were conducted by a lot of us there in, uh, in the military. And so um, NSA, as well as CIA and some other organizations make heavy, heavy use of uh, what we refer to as blue suitors, or in your case, you know, the, the MARFOR cyber or our cyber or any of the other cyber organizations that are out there. And so we were the Air Force's arm. We worked with two primary organizations, one focused on network warfare operations and the other one focused on um, telephone warfare operations, if you will. Um, and so I was involved in both units at, at one point in time doing both of those opportunities. But I'm happy to uh, talk in depth as far as you know what was happening in the region then at that time, um, tactics and techniques and procedures, how we viewed um, you know, you know, the issues that were unfolding in the region at the time, um, and, and really just kind of shed some light on, you know, you know, this construct of cyber war that really seems to have everybody up in a tizzy right now. Absolutely. And similarly, you know, but from a different perspective, obviously, you know, we've talked about it previously, but um, I was involved in the Marine Corps from 2009 to 2018, 
Uh, and about 2014, I got involved with Marfor Cyber, which is a subsidiary of US Cyber Command. The difference for me was I was specifically focused on intrusion detection for, uh, what do they call it, uh, defensive and counter infiltration operations. Um, a whole bunch of acronyms to basically say I did threat hunting all over the world, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, and 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 I realize that, that we may get like you're talking to like a bunch of, you know, like two military folks here. I promise you we're going to try not to get too far into the military acronym stuff today. Mm -hmm. But I think the real important part is that when we when you use the word and I don't want to take too much out of your, your speech that you got there, Jack. But when we talk about cyber war, oftentimes it is in the construct of military. And so I, I felt like Jack and I would be a great, great opportunity to uh you know, come in and share with you what it was like to actually be in the military during a time where they were trying to define what cyber war was. We were actively engaged in some form of cyber warfare, either on the receiving end or the delivery end of it, um, even though it wasn't highly talked about at the time. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I think that it's not even really that highly talked about today, even. I, I don't think mm -hmm. a lot of people even realize how much of the face of warfare has changed just because of the cyber domain and, you know, the ubiquity of de technical devices on a day-to-day -day basis and then people that are experts at you know attacking those or defending them either way yeah. you know 100 I, I mean and with that too i mean what we can just start at the basics here you know what what would you define cyber warfare as well i and and i i love how you make that distinction because i think that there's really kind of two ways that we talk about this topic right there is cyber warfare and then there is the definition of cyber war um, and, and I like making those two distinctions because if we look at traditional kinetic warfare, you know, if I drop a bomb in a location, you can see it. It explodes. You know that something bad has happened. Um, and in the construct of a cyber war, we have not defined what cyber war actually looks like. As a matter of fact, um, that was a it's been a huge point of contention even when I was in versus even the 2011 uh, doctrine that was put out. And, and that was the closest that I think the United States has ever come, where they've said that the U.S. reserves the right to respond to any cyber attack using kinetic-based warfare. But even the United States has not defined what a cyber war looks like. And I think that that just adds to the ambiguity that comes with any type of cyber warfare we may see. And so I'll flip it back over to you for the cyber warfare definition. So cyber warfare specifically, I would say, is uh, the cyber attacks levied in the interest of a nation state. So the, it would be more so specifically, um, or associated entities, I should say. Generally, though, it, you make a really great point. It's not very clearly defined, you know, at which point is the basics of intelligence collection versus attack doctrine. Is it just when it turns kinetic? Is it because you shut off the power? Like which well, part of it? well, so and this was this was something that we were taught very extensively in the Air Force is that it really depends on your intent. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a there's a lot of um, we could get really, really deep. And I apologize for the audience. The hesitation is trying to figure out, like, how deep we go with this, because you're literally talking about trying to dissect, you know, tens of years of, of, of military doctrine between Jack and myself. But there's really kind of two legal constructs that determine intent it's title 10 and title 50 and title 10 is really that that warfare aspect of it where you actually go and you you cause some type of effect against a target and then you have title 50 which is really geared towards the the intelligence collection of it 
And honestly, the way that the agency, the way that the military, the way that, that a lot of the government looks at it is it is all boils down to intent. What is your intent? Yeah, fully. And so we're saying that to go ahead and say that when you hear the word cyber warfare or, or cyber war, right, utilized in media and groups like that, please know that this is a very murky, even with professionals, this is a very murky type of area. But what we're, I think what we're going to be focusing in on is what is the intent, especially as it relates to Ukraine and Russia today, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, with that, we, I mean, we both have a bit of experience as, as far as what does the day-to-day -day type of, in you know, cyber warfare, cy wh wherever you're doing with the levying of attacks, what would the attackers in this case or the defenders really look like as far as a day-to-day -day type of uh, unit go, go by, if you will? Oh, I'd say you couldn't tell the difference. You couldn't tell the difference. I, I, I think that that's what makes, that's what continues to add to the ambiguity is that um, the distinction between cyber criminal activity and the distinction between state-sponsored activity is really only levied based on that intent or maybe to a very, very, very lesser degree, some of the TTPs that are used. And I know that, that we'll get into some of the TTPs a little bit later on that you talk about. Um, but I think that that's what makes it so difficult. And that's what's made classifying cyber war versus, you know, you know, cyber criminal activity so difficult and so challenging. I, yeah, I, I would agree. I would say that um, one very specific uh, grouping that I have noticed when it comes to high end state sponsored groups is the advancedness of it. You know what I mean? The access to things, the 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 maturity of the TTPs, if you will. Generally they, they, speaking, I, you know what they're doing. I want to I want to kind of dive into that maturity of the TTPs. When we talk about TTPs or tactics, techniques, and procedures, um, when we talk about the maturity, I want to I want to unpack that one a little bit, Jack, and and let's mm -hmm. let's walk the let's walk the audience through kind of what we talk about when we talk about the maturity of those. Um, when you look at um, some of the the hacktivism that's going on right now with anonymous or Ukraine calling on you know a, a malicious cyber warfare force to help them in their 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 struggles, um, there is no discipline to that motive or to that initiative. It is it is pray and spray. It is go out there and hack whatever it is that you can hack and and do whatever it is that you can do. And what I would almost say is that when Jack talks about the maturity of those TTPs, I think that that's how we would scale up if you were to look at the definition of state-sponsored activity is they have a very, very mature operation to the tactics, techniques, and procedures that they're using in the sense that they have what we refer to in the military as strategy to task. They have a strategy which is defined at their most upper levels of their military forces. And in the United States, the United States of America would be like the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Right. Um, that's given down by the presidential directives. And then they would take that strategy and they would develop operational and tactical level tasks with which to achieve said strategy. And they'd have, you know, you know, KPIs and metrics and things like that, battle damage assessments and things like that to kind of measure the success of those strategy task operations. And I think, Jack, that's what you're referring to when you talk about the maturity, right, is how do you go from right. just spraying and praying to having a real strategy to task in your military doctrine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely not just talking about being good at the job, right? Definitely talking about the holistic view of what the organization is. And when, what I don't think a lot of people realize is that when these attacks happen, it's not like happenstance. They got into the government and, the, you know, this group was just, um, they had a big vulnerability and that's why they got in. And it was an attack of opportunity. And that's not the case at all. 
Usually it's yeah. very strategic. It's planned out. They might do some surface retention type of uh, evaluations as to what's the likelihood of landing on these machines versus others and go for the softer targets. But still, access is and access. I, and, and I think that when we get to kind of like the first point about like what enterprises should be looking at when they're trying to decide, like, like should you be worried about getting attacked as part of this, this ongoing conflict that we're seeing or some of these cyber attacks? I think you have to look internally about yourself and say, what potential advantage could I have as an organization, either because of access to my clients, either because of access to my customers, either because of access to the networks that I, you know, that I, if you're an MSP, maybe you protect other networks and things like that. And so I think you have to self-reflect on yourself and say, mm -hmm. what is my core business model? And would an adversary benefit from having access to my networks? And I think that, that if you can answer that simple question yourself, you probably have grown up on that that radar chart about you know you potentially could be a, a target of some nation state type of attack. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Real quick question from DS over here: uh, Does the U.S. use the term cyber warfare as a catch-all for anything that might happen in the virtual world? I would I would argue that um, it is more so a catch-all for a tool set or a domain of operations as opposed to you know, just in case of anything happening. It's the same as saying like ground, sea, air, space mm -hmm. to them. It's not necessarily like a reflective of these events happened and this is cyber warfare, but this isn't. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think, um, I, I hate to use the word catch all, but they use, they view cyberspace as a domain. When, when Jack mm -hmm. talks about airspace, land, um, Air, space, land, sea. There we go. I, was, I forgot my, my, my brethren. Yeah, yeah. I forgot my <laughs> brethren in the in the navy for that one. Um, and space force. Yeah, and and those are those are domains. And so, cyber warfare is warfare that is happening in the cyber domain. Um, but that's why we make the distinction between cyber warfare and the actual definition of a cyber war. For those who are not familiar with the United States, um, before the president can authorize certain activities there has to be a congressional agreement on whether something was indeed an act of war. And that affects things like funding, yada, 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 tons of stuff. This is non-political. This is just how the, the congressional process works. Mm -hmm. And so by having a very, very specific definition of cyber war or having a lack of a definition, if you will, of a cyber war, it makes it hard for those, it makes it more ambiguous for those types of activities to occur. Mm -hmm. Very much so, or, or get hung up in the process. Whereas, yeah. I mean, can you imagine just trying to authorize absolutely everything constantly, day in and day out, over and over oh, and yeah. over again? You know. So with that, let's let's talk a little bit about Russia. Okay. Yeah. Um, like I said, we we have some experience here. So let's talk a bit about historically Russian operations. Now, one of the things that I, I was taught is they generally have two operating classes when it comes to um information technology, which is information technical and then information psychological. One being the actual engagement of technology and information, you know, IT devices and things like that versus information psychological, which is more of the fake news ingestion of, you know, media information that better moves their plot along, if you will. Um, but I'm, I think we're going to focus more on the information technical here to talk about that stuff because we can <laughs> we can dive super deep and long into fake fake news all day. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's that the, the and, we, and when we talk about that, just we talk about that in the sense of information warfare operations. That is an entire class of warfare operations that couldn't every country can do. And it goes very, very deep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
very yeah so i mean we we historic like we know it a lot from being deployed as psyops types of operations psychological operations is another name for it um but we're going to like i said we're going to pivot away from that and move into the information technology uh information technical space from what uh their doctrine says however um what i want to talk about though is the history so um Two primary APT groups, if you guys are unfamiliar with APT groups, they stand for Advanced Persistent Threats uh, that are little loose, little loose on the advanced part, just, just to throw yeah. that one out there. <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> um, but, you know, they are represented by um, the name 2829 or the grouping uh, number 2829 uh, referenced heavily in MITRE ATT&CK framework. And yeah, you're, you're correct. I mean, they run a gambit of things and some are super advanced, some are not really like the little surprising by how sloppy they got but realistically i mean they're aiming at government organizations political targets like the dnc has been known confirmed um solar winds was another attack that was associated with them as well i mean that was massive which that one was a bit more and then also a couple financial sector stuff so you know it, you, you kind of pointed out this runs the gamut of stuff both in technique and also targeting so where do you think the targeting is lying right now as far as compared to historical operations and right now? Um, I, I think we've seen Russia, especially when you make the distinction between their, their information tactical side, they have traditionally targeted um, disruption of communications um, in the targets they, ha they have chosen to take any type of kinetic military action against, right? And so when we talk about that, um, um, We've seen this in Estonia, right? They had a, they had an incident in Estonia a number of years. I think 2008 was when they did the 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 incident in Estonia. I think they've had a couple other incidents over the last few years. And when we talk about military doctrine, um, you know, one of the things that we oftentimes focus on, whether it's a kinetic war, whether it's a psychological war, or even whether it's a a, a war in cyberspace or something like that, is we have to target the the um, ability for the adversary to communicate and make decisions. One of the key fundamental points that we make in the military, especially in the intelligence game, is how quickly can our leaders make a decision? That's what the value of intelligence is. And if anybody's heard me on my stream, you know that I oftentimes use this when I talk about you know, the return on investment when you're talking to the board of directors or you know, to the CISO or the CFO or something like that, right, is how quickly can you get information um, and get it to your leaders? And so when you look at what um, what tactics Russia has employed, even with Russia and Ukraine, um, as, all, as well as what they've done with Estonia and other countries in the past, it's been primarily targeted on those parliamentary buildings, those Ministry of Defense uh, organizations, the ability for those military leaders to communicate and make those decisions faster and get that information over to the, the respective party leaders. Um, and, and so I think that that's, that's kind of point number one is, again, getting back to if you're in that chain, if you provide any type of support that allows communication between you know, you know, organizations that could potentially communicate, whether that's as something as simple as a, a, you know, WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, all the way up to some of the classified closed loop systems that that exist in some organizations, you as a telecom agency or as an internet provider agency are probably one of the primary targets for, you know, this type of aggression, because you're going to be able to directly contribute or affect um, the ability of the target organization to make any type of military judgment. Absolutely. Um, what 
and with that too, I mean, you know, we talk about the cutting off and, you know, turning off the lights or things like that when it comes to the telecoms or communication aspects, but what about utilities? I know that they used to be, they were targeted not very long ago. Um, there was a massive concern in the U.S. about them having actually been breached by Russia previously. You know, I, th I think that might be in this case, I, I look at it as economic impact. Anything mm -hmm. that can be targeted as far as either economic impact or, like you said, communications, telecoms, would possibly be a current risk. Uh, utilities are rough, right? Because, um, and, and when we talk about utilities, when I talk about them being rough, there's this concept of second and third order effects that come with utilities. Um, if you look at any country, look at a power grid, for example, there probably isn't just one thing operating on the power grid. It's probably not just one base. Same with like a water treatment facility plant. It's probably not just one military installation that that water treatment facility plant is, is there. And so, um, you know, you do have to take into consideration that there is the potential that you could have second and third order effects, meaning that if we shut off the power to a, um, a military installation, um, that shutting off that power could then shut off the power to a hospital. And that right there has other human rights and Geneva Convention type of um, uh, type of aspects to it. And so, you know, some, some people may go like, well, well, nobody cares about Geneva Convention. What is that there for? And I, it's real important to understand that the Geneva Convention is there to allow us to have a global law system to actually prosecute war crimes should that ever get invoked. And so it is really important to be able to classify that if there was a cyber attack from Russia and Ukraine that shut off a power grid that sure was targeting a military installation, but also caused thousands and thousands of people to die in a hospital because of a second, a second order effect, um, that goes to help the world enforcement you know, through the Geneva Convention to say that you've actually conducted war crimes in, in this regard. And so, um, you know, I think that that's when we talk about those larger order utility based effects, we have to take into effect the collateral damage that that could come with shutting down a power grid, poisoning a water treatment facility plant, um, disrupting a nuclear power plant where you could potentially have a nuclear nuclear waste disaster. And so I, while I do think that they are primary targets in a lot of cases when we talk about cyber warfare, and so if you're listening to this and you are doing cybersecurity for any type of um, uh, any, any type of utility company, you are definitively a target. Um, understand that that there's also the consideration about what could potentially happen through this the the disruption of that of you as a target set as well. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, we talk about so one of the things we mentioned previously is battle damage assessment came up uh, as we were introducing and things like that. I mean, and that's secondary tertiary effects of any form of effect, if you will, you know, be it an actual kinetic weapon versus a cyber attack always has to be a consideration and generally is surprisingly more. I, you know, I think people have a misgiving about being in uh, the military or war that we are in some way, shape or form this like unhinged group that is blood hungry <laughs> or whatever else. And in real, realistically, it's just a constant, risk assessment that's going through our heads as to what can we do to make sure that this happens versus this happening, you know, and there we are held to a very high standard should any of those secondary or tertiary effects happen. And I mean that both as an independent individual, if you accidentally fire your weapon, I, I, didn't, I know so many people that lost rank over that. Um, and then if you make a really big mess up, you're like you're kicked out, you can end up in federal prison. It's very easy. Well, I want to flip one back over to you because you were Mar4 Cyber. You did a lot of threat hunting and things like that. When you look at um, the distinction between your ability to 
defend the national objectives of the United States against cyber warfare. But then you look at an entity like a utility plant that wasn't directly under your purview, but you knew could have wartime effects. How did you handle that? How did you handle that inability to have governance or, or adversary visibility into those networks? So with those particular networks, um, they fall under a different sector, obviously, of the government that actually does have uh, work to monitor and everything else like that. There's also other methods and ways of monitoring from different areas, if you will, uh, without going into too many details. But point, point being is, um, you know, we were focused on what we can control. And with those secondary and tertiary effects, I mean, you, you, I just said it, you do a risk matrix. You try and plan for extra generators if you think you're going to be losing power at any time. Um, you build your building to specific uh, variances to, you know, account for EMI shielding sometimes. Like there's all sorts of different items and objectives. Um, we also had to rely a lot on the intelligence factor, the intelligence reporting from different entities and sources and things like that, which can be difficult because if you don't have context to where they got the information, um, you can kind of feel in the dark and have a lot of difficulty telling if that behavior pattern was just specific to that instance or that event versus is this just their common, you know, if this is just the way they act every time they go in somewhere. So yeah, 100%, 100%. Mm -hmm. Well, with that, so we, we talked about a bit about historically what, where Russia's at. Um, we've talked about, you know, what it's like working in that type of area. Um, you know, do you, do you remember some of Russia's capabilities, like the ones that you specifically would see as, because part of one thing I think people might not realize is that part of both of our training has been threat emulation, understanding mm -hmm. the adversary and then acting as them when necessary to, you know, practice, if you will, do, run a scrimmage. Um, so from the technical capacity, what are some of the things that you remember? One one of the things that that I want to make sure that everybody's aware of, and I've I've spoken freely about this, you know, since I've been since I've since I've been allowed to, um, Russia as well as other nation states that that exist out there that could pose a cyber risk to enterprises today, um, allow their civilian workforce to openly adopt a, a an aggressive cyber militia, if you will. Specifically, um, there are some there are some nation states out there who who encourage and empower um, their civilian cyber force to go out there and conduct cyber operations for their own uh, financial or, or information gathering, um, uh, you know, you know, need. I don't want to call it any any specific group or any specific country or anything else like that. But you know, you know, there was there was def definitively one group. Um, where they would, um, you know, actively exploit companies to basically put in um, black hole and Eleanor uh, exploit kits back in, you know, you know, back a few years ago. Um, but they had a directive specifically sent down from their government leadership that said, if you happen to exploit any DOD contractor, uh, any government organization, anybody of political power, um, you know, and they had a list of criteria. Um, we want you to stop your cyber crime activity, and we want you to actually put in our nation state malware on there instead. Back away from that target, leave it to us. We'll take it over from there. And that was, you know, when we, I think that that's that may be some of the first times that some of you may have heard just the level of cooperation that exists between the civilian hacking force and the state 
you know, the state hacking force in that regard. And so when we look at it from a, um, a, a technical capability perspective, um, and we, we saw recently, I think Ukraine uh, last week, uh, several other websites had um, had been attacked with a, a wiper based malware um, that was seeking to wipe out a lot of their their infrastructure. That wasn't an attack. And I think that that's one of the things that I want to emphasize most is that wasn't an attack that Russia, Russia woke up one day and said, we're going to target the Ministry of Defense. Boom, we got access to it in one day and boom, we're going to install the wiper software on there. Those or those operations are ongoing. When we talk about how a cyber operation works, um, there is there are organizations, whether it's United States, insert whatever you know state sponsored capability out there that seeks to constantly gain access into target networks um, for the purposes of again intent intelligence gathering, knowing that those access points could eventually turn into cyber warfare or some other type of, of effect at some point in time in the future. And so what you saw was you saw the results of an ongoing cyber operation that allegedly Russia had continued to do inside of the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. And then when the time was right, they launched their attack inside the Ministry of Defense to basically wipe all of those computers. And so to Jack's point early and to the conversation we were having earlier, this is why it's not just about some leet sauce zero day or they've got you know 50 you know computer guys in a in a in a room locked together finding the the latest and greatest zero days that are out there it's that level of coordination on operational efficiency that makes the state sponsored you know hackers so deadly do they have zero days at their disposal absolutely do they have a group of smart folks who are actively out there trying to find buy exploit you know you know vulnerabilities on a, on a regular basis absolutely but it's that type of operational organization that I think is what makes Russia or any other state-sponsored uh, entity. That's that definition of advanced, in in my opinion. I would I would fully agree. I think another issue too that a lot of people don't consider is that it makes attribution much more difficult from a defender's perspective because you have so many different people acting in so many different ways. Um, but still reaching the same objective. So it becomes hard to fingerprint these individuals, you know, and for those of you unaware from what I'm talking about from a detection standpoint, fingerprinting is the, you know, the capacity to actually tell who the author of malware is or who's running the, you know, the actual operations and the events. And it can be from, you know, uh, looking at the string events of what was used in the command line versus what type of, um, you know, methods that were utilized within the code itself. There's all different methods and ways. I mean, the easiest one would be, I mean, you get fingerprinted by just going to, as, a, as an individual user, you going to a website, you will be fingerprinted and you will say, you know, this is you because this is your ad ID. This is your, you know, browser type. This is whatever else that you have going on. Imagine that, but at the technical level for uh, whenever we come and we look at things after the fact, you know, a CSI, if you will. Um, but because they utilize so many different operators to reach the same objectives, it becomes a laundry list of capabilities and capacities when in reality, it's just like that contractor used to work for us. Well, and and quite honestly, when we talk about attribution, that's another part, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of organizations right now who are potentially going to get attacked as part of some ongoing cyber activity that's going on right now, whether that's new, net new cyber activity or they're going to bear witness to you know, threat actors who have already had access to their network. You're going to be quick to want to blame it on Russia. You're going to be quick to want to do attribution. And I can't emphasize enough. I, I'm in the camp to where, you know, 
attribution is useless. I, I definitely don't subscribe to the belief that that if you are working for a private, you know, sector company providing a service or capability, and you get hit with a, a, a you know, a, some form of cyber attack, that you need to run out and try to determine whether it was China, whether it was Russia, whether it was, you know, who insert whatever whatever co- company, country threat actor group, whatever the case is here. The reason being is that most entities are not and should not be equipped um, to do any type of hackback or retaliation against them. Um, you know, even the United States military, when it comes to you know detecting cyber attacks, I can unequivocally tell you that simply because you don't see it in the news on a day-to-day basis, the United States government, all the entities, whether it's DOD, uh, FBI, CIA, right, DOJ, you know, every entity in the United States government is getting attacked on a daily basis. There are penetrations that are detected and there are penetrations oh. that are undetected. <clears throat> and you don't hear about them because they are handled in the course of normal cyber defensive posture, as Jack mentions. And, and so, you know, it is because attribution doesn't even do I don't want to say it doesn't do anything, but it doesn't do much, even at the national level, other than fuel the faint flames of political fire. And even more so if you're a private entity, you're not going to do anything about it. And, and so attribution is probably one of the lowest things that you should be worried about, especially in this ongoing cyber crisis that you may be dealing with now with Russia and Ukraine. Um, you should just be handling it in the course of your normal incident response workflow. Jack? Uh, I mean, absolutely. And that's one of the th- one of the issues that I was reading previously is you know, there were multiple attacks against Ukraine that just recently happened within the last week or so on a couple more that were leading up to it. And it, it was immediately just assumed it's either Russia or Russia entity or some form of, you know, Russia probably likely play, paid them or engaged with them. Because at this point, especially with the speed of operations that you need to move at to actually be effective, you're just kind of just assuming. And then, you know, you might get to the actual truth someday down the line if somebody really wants to. But the, I mean, the realism is you have to keep operations up and going Mm -hmm. and then you can go back and look at the, you know, evidence that, you know, will still last and exist. Um, So let me go ahead and hit some of these questions real quick before we keep moving on there, Neil. Um, So Brian Godfrey asked a really great question. So FSB's takedown of Revil was because they didn't play by uh, Mr. (laughs) Putin's rules. Um, I, th- I think, uh, in the grand scheme of things, we'll never know the, the actual real reason why, um, the FSB took down Reval. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in no better place to hypothesize than I think anybody else is out there. Um, I think that, that there is anywhere a combination of absolutely they didn't play by, you know, Mr. Putin's rules to, you know, they needed to have some political stunt to show that they were trying to support the international efforts to try to crack down on cybercrime. Um, there's a wide gamut of stuff. I think that, that in, in the essence of that question, nobody will ever know, but that is not a far-fetched theory by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I, I I would agree too. Even when I saw it, I was like, I just shook my head because I'm like, you know, half that group is not part of that, and they're gonna pop back up in the next couple of weeks. I mean, it, it you know, that's. I think a lot of cybersecurity professionals saw the, that type of reporting and were just like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, uh, JC one three seven asked about when you talk about ISP, should they have extensive background checks for employees that are in the Knox? And ensure that there are not any vulnerabilities to, as you say, social exploitation. So I'm thinking, I, I think they might be worried about insider threat here as yeah. an extension of, you know, cyber war. Yeah, I think um, 
Um, and I and I don't know how you feel about insider threat. I, I'm also very very cynical on insider threat uh, as well because I think that it's it's you know that is that is one where you could get a lot of accidental collateral damage based on what you suspect is illicit behavior, which is in fact just normal human behavior. And I don't think anybody really understands what normal behavior is versus non-normal behavior when it comes to how they operate on a on a on a network. And so like I, I'm very, very cynical on insider threat. To your to the root of your question is should ISPs do background checks? I think that if you I think you should apply a mentality that if you are operating with sensitive information or you are operating a critical infrastructure or you are operating with a high risk business item, I think you should weigh your risk tolerance. And I don't think background checks are so far out of line, um, you know, depending on, on what your risk posture is. Do I think that you should worry about um, insiders from a cyber perspective? We saw, um, I think it was a gosh, this is probably a year ago now, Jack, remind me if I keep me honest on this one, where there was a, um, you know, a, a ransomware gang member um, in Utah, I think it was, it was Utah or Texas or Nevada, wherever the Tesla uh, manufacturing site is, trying mm-hmm. to uh, bribe an employee for like, I think it was like a million dollars or something like that to give them a USB oh. drive to walk into a Tesla uh, a manufacturing facility and stick it in there from a ransomware perspective. And so I think that's something that you can do a background check all day, but may not necessarily show itself up as being a potential cybersecurity insider threat problem. Do I think mm. in the current conflict, you should be worried about insider threat? Um, I think that if you are an international company and you have offices all across the globe, I think that insider threat is probably something you had on your radar uh, already. And, and so I think that you probably are already looking for it. I think that from a, I'd let Jack, I'll let you time in from a detection response perspective when it comes to insider threat. Yeah, realistically, I mean, you should always, I, I personally, I believe that you should always be um, cognizant of, you know, job duties, make sure that your separation, you know, job, basic job duty separation, the basics of maintaining, you know, um, appropriate access as necessary. I think that if you are regional, if you are regional to the actual current warfare, that that is a very fair thing to be cognizant of, a bit more cognizant of. I mean, don't go on a witch hunt, but yes, you know, please I don't think, go on a witch hunt. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. For those of you <laughs> not, not unaware of what we're talking about, don't immediately, you know, if you hear hooves, don't immediately think zebras. It could just be a horse, you know what I mean? And yeah. that's an old saying that um, when you're doing threat detection and you see somebody that has too many failed login attempts, don't immediately think that they're trying to hack your server, hack your database, and they're, you know, an insider agent but treated it appropriately through the protocols as to an actual investigation. Um, just don't jump to conclusions is basically a really complicated way of saying that. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of moving along through this and there are more than a couple questions here. I'm going to kind of pivot this a little bit into a uh, dev Nils and gave us a great question. Uh, do you think companies making very public statements about supporting Ukraine are opening themselves to cyber threats? And I'm going to pivot that into our conversation about what can we do further about mm-hmm. enterprise protection and enterprise defense? I, I don't think I don't think that if you are making public statements in support of Ukraine, that you are any more or any less likely to become a target than you were prior to conflict breaking out. Um, as I said before, there's a there's a term we use um, 
you know, when we talk about cyber warfare, where we talk about operational preparation of the environment, right? OPE. Um, when you are preparing the environment for any type of cyber attack, that's where you are, you're already hacking into that organization. You've already sent your spear phishing emails. You've already found a zero day in their, you know, their boundary. You're already establishing your short haul and your long haul communications. And you're already in there conducting cyber operations to basically prepare that environment for a future, um, you know, cyber mission that you could have to do. If you weren't a target prior to the conflict, you simply showing support, at least from a state-sponsored activity, doesn't instantly make you a target whatsoever. Um, when we get into, when Jack and I talk about the vigilantism and the hacktivism, and I know that I've seen some questions come through chat about the anonymous stuff, and I know that that's something that we, we can definitely talk about, um, about the, the vigilantism and the hacktivism, you could potentially be seen as a target in that regard, but I think that that really just kind of gets back to what is your profile? What is it you're trying to do? Are you a high value target? Um, you know, if, if mom's pizza shop is is supporting Ukraine, it's probably not likely that they're going to be a, a target of some type of vigilantism or hacktivism. And, you know, un, unless somebody just wants to make a statement for, you know, for the cloud on the interwebs. But I think if to your original question, Dev, I think if you weren't a target before you simply supporting doesn't instantly, you know, escalate you on the target you know profile. I would agree. I would say, I would argue that if you suddenly became part of the supply chain in any way, shape or form, because, you know, new, you're opening up new services offerings or expanding everything else like that, you might become on, uh, you know, you know, might migrate into mm -hmm. the target list. Right. Um, but I would also argue that their hands are busy enough that I don't, I'm not even sure if they're, you know, un unless you cause a really big splash, I don't think that they're probably entertaining right. beyond what we already had planned you know there's yeah. there's a lot of work to be done from there I, 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 I hate this whole argument you know this jack we've talked about this extensively like, i hate this whole argument where it's like no i'm just going to keep quiet because i don't want to become a, a target myself mm -hmm. and and i don't think that that is an adequate cybersecurity strategy right if you're a company out there and you're like oh i'm just gonna not gonna say anything and hopefully nobody pays attention to me that nowhere in military doctrine nowhere in NIST publications nowhere in cissp nowhere in anything does it say if you ignore it, you will never become a cyber target. <laughs> That's true. And then there's also something to say about not making a target of yourself by calling people out. But again, right. you have to call them out. Like don't like you can talk about situations, global situations without necessarily, uh, you know, specifically calling somebody directly out and saying we're a challenge. I'm, I'm not, I'm trying very hard not to do it myself as an example. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Um, so Palmy asked a great question. I've read a speculation article that said the immediate risk of cyber attacks from Russia to companies and corporations now higher than before, especially for companies and countries that have implemented sanctions. Do you think the industry needs to be on special alert right now? Now, I think we've already covered the sanctions part and whether or not you're high risk. We, we've, we've, you know, tapped that one. But the part that I do want to hit on this is should we be on special alert as cybersecurity, you know, providers? I think the answer is unequivocally yes, absolutely. I think I think anytime there is certain global issues that we're all dealing with, especially in an area, you know, this one in particular that that does center around warfare, I think there there is a large segment section of the the populace that should absolutely be on special alert. Obviously, I think this is larger than some of the other global issues that we've seen over the last you know, five to 10 years. 
Um, this is probably one of the one of the more major ones we've seen over the last five to ten years. Um, this one causes for more attention to that special alert than I think some of the others. But I think regardless of where you're at, regardless of what your threat profile is, regardless, I think you should be taking particular, you know, you know, due course in evaluating your risk, evaluating your defensive posture, evaluating the training of the folks that are on your team, providing you with those defensive capabilities. Um, and, and, and basically, you know, you're just taking an inventory and making sure that you're ready should the lasers start getting pointed in your direction. Yeah. I, I mean, I would agree as well. One of the things I can tell you right now that is going to happen, I'm going to forecast the future for you. Ready? We're going to see phishing campaigns about Russia and Ukraine. Donate here. Absolutely. Donate here. It's a fake link. It happens Absolutely. every time. It happens with the pandemic. You're going to get users that were like, oh, I was trying to donate to whatever. And it's it's going to be something. So Absolutely. I mean, as a, whenever you have any of these big events, you can always anticipate that stuff happening. So I know that one's coming. Um, should you be worried uh, beyond what we talked about in the target listing, if you're part of the supply chain or your whatever else, should you be worried about Russian APTs targeting your company? No, I do not with a, think with an asterisk, <laughs> with an asterisk. Right. Um, I think as a general rule, I think I think 90 percent of the companies out there do not have Russian APT on their bingo card. I don't think they have a reason to. I'd agree with that. Um, I, I, I do. I do think that there is always a cognizant view to have if you're in any form uh, part of the country's infrastructure. Yeah, you know, um, but that's just more so regular infrastructure concerns, things like that. Now, if the work isn't done yet, do you think that what are some things that in, uh, individual enterprises can start doing to either bolster up detection or um, bolster up, you know, uh, preparation, if you will? Um. I think familiarizing yourself with, you know, MITRE attack and Russian APT groups is a fantastic place to start. Um, one of the super simple things, and I know it's hard to do for a lot of organizations, but if you're an organization that you definitively know that you only have U.S.-based clients or you only have clients of your specific particular country, your, your, your executives don't travel to, you know, conflict countries or countries that are, you know, you know, potentially, you know, high threat from an APT perspective, um, you can start locking things down on a per country basis, right? If you don't have to have traffic originating from a high threat country, then what's stopping you from shutting down access to that traffic from those high threat countries? Now, again, this doesn't, you know, there's always gonna be somebody out there who's like, oh, but VPN this and all oh, but tour network that and, and sure, but that's why we go back to the training, which is defense in depth, right? And how do we build defensive postures in depth? And so if you can at least stop, you know, you know, traffic origination from high threat countries, then that is at least one less threat vector that you have to worry about in, in terms of that. Um, and again, I know that that's always, it's always a touchy subject because, you know, you know, people say, well, I can't limit traffic here. Or I've got clients here. Or I've got travel that happens there. And that's fine. You take it what you can. You know, we so undervalue. We so undervalue getting back to the basics, um, you know, you know, having patches on your system having multi-factor authentication put in place, having strong detection response rules, having a well-rehearsed tabletop incident response plan um, are, are all things that, um, that I think are super easy for most organizations to do on a day-to-day -day basis. 
now's a fantastic time to dust those things back off and make sure they're all working for you. I would agree with that. And I'm going to actually go a step further in, right? If you want to do something as a leader right now, I would highly suggest you audit your administrators list. Take a look at all the administrators in your enterprise environment, and you should be able to identify who they are in the organization immediately. Um, at, at least the non-service accounts, I should say. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where I people keep saying, you know, I keep saying over and over again, back to the basics. Yeah. And the basics are, what do you have? Who is in charge of it? And, you know, who are you talking to? Those three things, if you can say those three things, then you're going to be ahead of the uh, ahead of the curve. When, when we talk about like uh, all the all the phishing emails that you're going to get coming out of this 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 uh, Russia Ukraine thing, don't forget all the vendor emails that are going to come out and tell you that they've got all the greatest technology that's going to st- help you be protected from you know any type of APT from Russia Ukraine. So mm-hmm. I, there is there is no substitute no substitute for the basics. I fully agree. You know, DJ Bsec asked, uh, should we just call Jack Bauer? Um, <laughs> you know. I, I'm not, I'm not so sure that, you know, kinetic would be really helpful right now. They would be sick, but, uh, you know, appreciate the question all the same. I will say that from a defensive perspective, if you are seriously interested in doing threat hunts related to this or any other types, any other forms of this, one thing you can take a look at is DNS site requests based on reputation. If there are external entities that are going from, um, take a look at people that are connecting to Twitter via browser basis. Usually that's something that you handle from an app on your phone. You know, if you're connecting via Twitter and you see something that's happening very frequently and they're not in marketing, you might want to just take a look and be like, yeah, why is the CFO's computer constantly connected to Twitter? Um, <laughs> that's part of yeah. manic control domains. And then I used to like to take PowerShell back. You know, I would we would log all the PowerShell scripts and stuff. I would stack them and then I'd do a diff on them with account. And then I would see the ones that only were ran once or twice. And I would comb through those sometimes and see like, what are the really long ones by count, like lengthwise, and poke around for some of that stuff? Usually it was just a waste of time, but on occasion you get lucky. Absolutely. Absolutely. PowerShell is still unlogged and allowed on most networks. So 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, a lot of, a lot of the blogs, and um, I was taking a look at, uh, wow, I just completely forgot what the reference was <laughs> that we were talking about <laughs> on Friday. Well, uh, the CISA put it out. Um, Oh, the, anyway. uh, the, the, the notice or the recommendation? Both. I can't remember what it's called <laughs> though. It's the it, acronym. Um, anyway, enough of me floundering on here. <laughs> Point being is, uh, CISA put out a, uh, notification on, I believe it was Friday, but some of the recommendations on there was one of them was turn logging on. And while I agree and disagree, <laughs> I also disagree with that too, because if you just turn logging on and you're not aware of any form of logging strategy, those can actually cause hits to your operational capacity if they fill up and you have no way of rolling them or anything. Yeah. The, the, the just turn logging on, you know, I, I think is, I, it's, it's hard to, that's one of those where it's like, I, your intentions are good. Sissa. Mm-hmm. I appreciate what your intentions are good at. Um, what they mean is if you're not logging, you should be logging. That is a true statement. You should be logging. Very much so. If you haven't logged anything up until now, you simply turning logging on, isn't going to do anything for what may have happened in the past. It may allow you to catch something that may happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If to Jack's point, 
Um, you've done all of the other things that kind of go along with logging, which is developed your use cases, identified your indicators of compromise, put them into your alerting platform, and giving you actually something actionable to look at on your defensive radar instead of just turning on logging and figuring out how to go from there, Jack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, it's. I, I think it just depends also. I mean, let's be honest, cybersecurity is definitely not one size fits all it is it is very much so a custom measure based on what your company is doing um depending on your size yeah the basics will go a very long way and you can usually find some off the off the shelf solutions that will work for most 80 percent of what you need right but yeah. uh when the, the larger you get the more of a custom solution that you're going to need you know it's just yeah. kind of like a suit for whenever you're working in the job too the higher you get up in the company the more custom that suit should probably look yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to bash on CISA too hard. Their intentions are good, but there's a lot more mm -hmm. to that statement than I think. Uh, I think they realize when they put it out. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think you made some uh, good points too, talking about the higher end echelons of this. You know, you you talked about um, doing the dry run. So yeah, brush off your disaster recovery plan. Do a dry run real quick. Talk to everybody that is involved as far as the stakeholder. Make sure they know it. They understand it. Maybe sit down for an hour and be like, yo. If this happens, what what do we do then? You know, yeah. just a quick like Q and A session, and judge whether or not they're ready. If not, then maybe have them focus a little bit more on time. Another thing is, uh, check your backup schedules. I think that that yeah. would probably be more effective than uh, turn on logging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially in the in the age of ransomware, way mm -hmm. way more important. <laughs> Ab absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, there's we had a lot of questions this time about and we've seen and I'm not sure if we want to talk about this or dive too deep into this, but we've seen a bit on hacktivism, you yeah. know, um, we've seen a bit on vigilantism that's going on with this. Uh, Anonymous has taken some actions recently. Um, I'm not sure if you want to make a comment on that at all. Um, so so probably about 18 months ago, I had uh, General Williams on on my show. And General Williams was um, the the three-star general in charge of U.S. Cyber Command when I was there. Um, and we had a very, 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 very heated and in-depth conversation about this. And I think he said it best, right, is, um, you know, you, you should let the professionals do what the professionals do, right? I, I don't... I, and, and again, you, you know, I want to I want to make something expressly clear. I do think the United States needs to adopt some of the same inscription type services that that other nation states do in terms of allowing allowing their folks to join some type of a formalized cyber militia, you know, you know, outside of what the government you know allows them to do. So I'm definitely on the side of that. But I think that a, a general call for cyber vigilantism and cyber hacktivism um could end up causing more problems than I think that that most organizations or even most people want to admit. I mean, certainly it is very cool to do the call to arms and go wage cyber war from across the globe to try to help, you know, try to help a country out that's in, in disarray. And I absolutely wholeheartedly empathize with those people who want to do that. But when we talk about strategy to task, I want, I want everybody to understand you could definitively be interrupting at some level, established cyber missions that some nation state, some allied nation state to Ukraine is doing out there right now. 
And that may not necessarily be the effect that you wanted to have. You may be thinking, oh, I'm just going to DDoS this website. But what if that website was providing some critical piece of access to some key internal infrastructure uh, inside the target nation? And you DDoSing that, you know, that new site basically cuts off any allied ability to, con to conduct further cyber operations that may be stopping a missile attack stopping communication flow to forward battlefield commanders. And those are things that because you're not privy to by doing cyber vigilantism and, and hacktivism, things like that, you could be doing more harm than good. And so um, it's, it's exciting. It's a hundred percent exciting. And I implore, I, I empathize with everybody who wants to participate um, and, and rarely, and by rarely, I mean, never, have we ever had a global call to arms, number one, let alone a global call to arms for everybody to help from a cyber perspective? But again, I would caution everybody that saw that call to arms to be cautious about engaging in it because you may actually be having a negative effect when you think you're having a positive effect. Additionally, I want to caution everybody who's reading the reports of some of the hacktivism that's going on out there. Um, DDoSing a website, um, you know, hacking into somebody's WordPress site, um, you know, things like this. Um, there is a concept that we we have in the military. We got the the five Ds, right? Uh, I'm going to mess this up. I know I am. Deny, degrade, disrupt, destroy, or deceive. Look at there, I got all five of them right that time. Um, mm -hmm. Those are the general rules that most strategies and task is built on. To is how do we deny, degrade, deceive, disrupt, destroy? Um, you know, any of the adversaries capabilities when we go to conduct a military operation, simply because you DDoSed RT, for instance, just because that was in the news, you have no idea what the impact of DDoSing RT was, right? RT is, is Russian, Russian telecom, I think it is for Russian TV. Um, did you actually do anything? Is it up and running now? Did you stop some critical address? There is a difference between DDoSing it because it's fun right now versus when there is a potential address that is about to happen from a political leader and then you DDoSing it at that point in time versus randomly over time. And so it's that mentality and that construct that I think gets lost in this excitement around hacktivism and this excitement around vigilantism that I think makes, makes the effort, quite frankly, kind of moot and useless, in my opinion. I would fully, fully agree. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a bit of almost FOMO of fear of missing out for some of the individuals that are within the community. You know what I mean? Like it, this, you're right. This is, a, this was a call to arms for a, a global call to arms. But I think at this point, you know, not, it's not always that all hands make the best effort, right? Sometimes it, it needs to be tailored or, you know, structured or whatever else. You can have everybody you want there to help build a house, but if they can't swing a hammer correctly, you know, then it's 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 just going to be a complete mess, and there's going to be more people in the way, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and again, I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to poo poo on on this idea. Like, look, when it when it happens, Lord knows I get excited. I'm like, woo, mm -hmm. we get to do some cyber militiaing. But at the same time, I know what it's like to be in those war rooms and those battle those battle conversations, and the less external influence you have while you're trying to conduct a cyber operation the more successful it's likely to be that's one and also jess bishop makes a great uh, point in chat there there are also potential legal consequences yeah. to face as well you know that yeah. just because there's been a call out doesn't mean it came from any you know there i i have not heard or seen of an official for the us at least doj stance on that 
That's so, right. I mean, we're we're not lawyers here on this call, but the Computer Fraud mm -hmm. and Abuse Act doesn't say that if you know Ukraine calls you up and says, "Hey, we'd love for you to hack," you know, on behalf of us, that you're not going to get a knock on the door from somebody around that. Exactly, and you would be surprised. Like you know, and there's a whole other <laughs> there's a whole other conversation to have too about anonymity and the use of basic technology. I promise you, you start sending packets from Cali out through your basic ISP and trying to hit something on the far side of the web that you haven't VPNed into, you're going to get a call from your ISP. They're going to shut you down too. You know, they see that stuff. So a lot to be considered there. A lot more to be considered there. Very, very much so. And something that I think we can dive into all, all absolute day. Um, I think that's going to be about it for the questions. Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, it's always a great time with you. I really do enjoy the time and, you know, value added. So thank you so much for, for it. I'm going to sign off with the group. Thanks for hosting. And thanks to everybody in the audience for participating today. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Sounds good. See you then, Neil. All right. Well, everybody that wraps up today's stream. Thank you so much for watching. Now, if you're just tuning in and you happen to miss it live, or there are some points early on that we were talking about that you didn't quite get, that's fine. Take a look for the replay, the replay across all of our social channels and on the INE website. Uh, we will be live again tomorrow, Tuesday, March 1st, for a special segment discussing Women's History Month with our own Catherine Brown and Natasha Emanuel. Uh, they will be diving into historic and present-day women pioneers within the STEM fields, along with uh, Alexandria San Miguel, San Miguel as our special guest. I swear, people, I can't speak appropriately. Just not today. Um, be sure to like and subscribe on our social platform you're using so you can stay in the loop for details on the next stream and also the notifications when we do go live with our special guests. As always, bring your questions and say hi. We really do enjoy and engage with you guys here. Thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for the questions. A lot of really stimulating conversation. I'm really glad that we were able to be there with you today and hopefully we're value added. So we will see you next time. And until then, have a great week and be safe. Or a great week, sorry. <laughs>